0: Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. I'm so glad to have one of my favorite guests back on Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina. Dr. Taylor Wallace is not only a friend and a colleague, but we are working together and he's been a very trusted advisor with my new company, Ahara, which is focused on food-first precision nutrition. And today we're going to talk about magnesium. And Taylor, this is one of your favorite topics, right?
1: One of those nutrients that's very understudied.
0: Yeah, it's very understudied and people, it's really not on people's radar still, even though there are so many important things, but it seems like calcium gets all the glory here. And (laughs) so, so what got you interested in magnesium research in the first place? I'm curious.
1: Well, you know, magnesium is involved in over 600 uh, enzymatic reactions in the body. So, Every cell in your body really needs magnesium, and we've traditionally thought about magnesium in regard to heart health and bone health, but our cells extend so far beyond that, and there's so much new ground to be conquered. Uh, So we moved more into the exercise space, uh, but also, um, as you know, as a clinician, um, checking an individual's magnesium status is quite difficult um, because magnesium is regulated by the body. We've been working to develop accurate uh, clinical measures of an individual's magnesium status so that clinicians like yourself and others uh, can monitor their patients and give them better dietary advice around magnesium.
0: Well, that, you, you know, you bring up a really interesting point, and I'm wondering whether that's one of the reasons why magnesium research has lagged behind. Although you really can't measure calcium accurately in the blood, but you can look at bone density, which is kind of what people think about as the therapeutic target. But it's, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of companies have these at-home tests for magnesium, but the truth is they're, they're not accurate. I mean, magnesium has to be so like dangerous. Are they ever really usable in a clinical way? Are they ever meaningful? Because it is so tightly regulated. And and so it doesn't actually reflect what's going on at a cellular level, right?
1: Right. And if you look at serum magnesium, which is the most widely used measure of magnesium status, you really only see problems in patients that are in critical condition in the ICU uh, that are already hospitalized, because again, your body regulates it. The issue is that 99% of magnesium, it's inside the cell. Uh, the rest of magnesium, the other 1% uh, in the blood is bound to proteins. Uh, and there's a little bit called free ionized magnesium. We were talking a little bit about it uh, in regard to brain health before uh, the show started. But we think that that might be a better measure. Um, there are some quick uh, electro analyzers that can uh, be used to measure it, Uh, but we need to finish doing that validation study to see if it is actually useful in a clinical setting. So that's one area that I got really interested in because over uh, 45% of Americans uh, don't get enough uh, magnesium intake from food uh, just uh, in self-reported food intakes uh, surveys, uh, which we know are usually pretty highly inaccurate to begin with.
0: Yeah, no, and I I think, you know, one of the things that uh I mean, in the foods, honestly, the foods that contain magnesium, leafy greens, beans, whole grains, nuts and seeds, most Americans aren't eating enough of those foods in the first place, and I think it's really important for people to understand that because our soil quality has deteriorated so much over the past 50 years with industrialized farming that even if you're getting a few servings of those foods a day, you may not be hitting the magnesium targets, right?
1: Right. And actually, one of the really neat studies that's ongoing at George Mason University right now, I'm not involved in this study. They're using satellite imaging technology to look at nutrients like calcium and magnesium in the soil. And it's been reported that magnesium levels in particular have gone down in the soil. And so I think this satellite imaging technology is going to bring us a lot more uh, really unique data to support that coming soon.
0: Oh, that's that's super interesting, actually. I didn't even know that could be done via satellite. So before we get into kind of how magnesium works in the body and the health benefits, you bring up a, an important question for me and probably our listeners is like, Is there a difference between consuming magnesium in a food form versus a supplement form? I mean, because I'm always, again, Ahara takes a food first approach, but with smart supplementation. So, I mean, is there something about the food matrix or is there synergy of nutrients that would make you at least want to try to do food first and then have, you know, supplements fill in the gap?
1: yeah so first when it comes to supplements in regard to magnesium and magnesium is unique in this um, aspect uh, supplements are what you can really cause toxic effects from Uh, so supplements cause that uh, laxative effect uh, that you get um, when you take too much magnesium food won't do that we know that magnesium um, is affected by other components in the food Uh, either beneficially or detrimentally. Uh, So for instance, if you are uh, taking a food or supplement that contains high calcium along with magnesium, the two compete for absorption uh, and several nutrients compete with magnesium for absorption. Plants also contain uh, nutrients called phytates uh, that can interfere with nutrients like calcium and magnesium from being absorbed. Uh, Now, again, when it comes to supplements, that's really when you have to worry about uh, toxic levels. So we always preach the food first approach because foods are rich in many uh, micronutrients and macronutrients that um, help us thrive. And those nutrients have synergies together. So magnesium is not the only nutrient, for example, that's related to heart health. Um, calcium is related to heart health uh, in many aspects. You know, calcium is your extracellular uh, cation that's outside of the cell and magnesium is your intracellular cation. And what happens is we don't get enough magnesium and oftentimes our blood levels of calcium are regulated very nicely by the body. And so there's an off balance in the cell uh, of magnesium. And so that's when you really start to see um hypertension, uh, and higher blood pressures begin to develop. Uh, so it's not just about one nutrient. People think I can take a supplement that's single nutrient that has heart health written all over it, but it's really a total diet approach to health.
0: You know, you, that's a really interesting point because I think that's it's the, really the similar situation with sodium and potassium, where it's actually the balance, the ratios that are more important. But I think, unfortunately, people in this country are much more... Uh, aware of the importance of calcium, so what happens? Wh- what's the downside of of that imbalance? Because that that's you know I think a lot more people probably take calcium than magnesium, thinking that they're making their bones stronger. I think that's probably the primary reason for people taking calcium. But what are some of the negative effects of having that imbalance?
1: Well, look in regards to calcium, uh, it's uh, it's quite a complex situation. I always recommend calcium supplements for uh um, women that are going through menopause and in the postmenopausal uh, state to prevent loss of bone density. And I think that they're very effective. I think research and clinical trials have shown that um, your body regulates calcium. So when you take a supplement, uh your body um Your body only takes really what it needs, one, when it's absorbed, because we know vitamin D helps control uh, calcium absorption uh, from the intestine into the bloodstream. And then again, it uh, regulates putting that calcium into bone. Uh, When it comes to absorption, yes, magnesium and calcium do compete, and we usually do have low uh, magnesium status. Uh, but calcium stays somewhat regulated in the blood because if it goes high in the blood, then you start getting heart issues. Uh, so your body through parathyroid hormone uh, and vitamin D regulate uh, the amount of calcium uh, that's absorbed and the amount that's in the bloodstream. The kidneys filter out that calcium that you don't need. The same happens with magnesium. It's just we don't have as exposure. Uh, it's There's the sodium potassium pump in the body. Uh, but what happens is, You have high sodium because we have a lot of salt in our diet. And you have a low potassium because people aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables. And that's the primary source of potassium. So when you have low intake of uh, potassium inside the cell and high intake of sodium outside of the cell, you have the same type of issue. And oh, by the way, magnesium helps regulate uh, potassium. You can't replete somebody in potassium in a hospitalized setting unless you're sufficient in magnesium first. And magnesium also uh, controls vitamin D and vitamin D receptors. So if you think you're just going to take a vitamin D supplement and uh, get back to normal levels, uh, you also have to be sufficient in magnesium. So all of these uh, electrolytes work together uh, to really create a healthy a healthful situation uh that's better for longevity. So yes, calcium supplements, I'm totally behind. I don't take a calcium supplement because I have high bone density um, and I'm a male. Um, not to say men don't get osteoporosis, but you know, at almost age 40, I have really high bone density. Um, and so, you know, I think supplementing as appropriate for your own personalized nutrition is a really smart approach. And, you know, thinking of this as a a complex network instead of just individualized nutrients, like you said, is important. And it's one reason we peak. Preach the food-first approach. Yeah, that's
0: what I was going to say. The food-first approach kind of helps cover your bases and and makes sure that you're, you know, getting a variety. I think when people start cherry-picking nutrients, that's when you can get into trouble, when they start, you know, they read about this supplement or that. So I really love the food-first approach, and I love the idea that all these nutrients are really working together. And that's why food is going to be better as a starting point. But then supplements really can help, particularly if you have, you know, specific issues or specific requirements. Right. So let's talk about some some of the people that may need more magnesium than they realize or may have a tendency to not absorb enough or get enough. I think the bone question is really a good one to start with because I think, you know, people think of you know, vitamin D and calcium when they think of bone health, but you talk a lot about the role of magnesium. So tell us a little bit about that. Is that something that kind of, you know, pre-peri postmenopausal women should be really thinking about?
1: Absolutely. And about 50% of the body's magnesium actually resides in the bone. It's a part of the crystalline form of bone. You know, uh, um, bone is a uh, crystalline form, form or network of minerals uh, and protein uh, that are complex together. It's a living tissue um, and it stores magnesium much like it does uh, calcium and zinc and uh, some of your other nutrients. Um, Other people who are um, at risk of uh, of vitamin D inadequacy, um, not just postmenopausal women, uh, you know, magnesium inadequacy is, Uh, fairly rampant across the U.S. population, again, because the the people aren't eating their fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, beans, um, all of those foods that are rich in magnesium and other minerals that we also need. I remember those beans are also good sources of iron and zinc and all those other uh, types of nutrients. Uh, People that are at risk, uh, about 50% of the population, a little less than 50% of the population don't meet current dietary recommendations. Now, outside of those people, maybe you're gluten sensitive or have celiac disease. Um, those uh types of, of GI diseases can uh, result in chronic diarrhea and therefore you not absorbing the magnesium in your body. People with type 2 diabetes um, have increased urinary magnesium excretion. So the uh, kidneys are filtering too much uh, out. Um, and that that is uh, fairly common in type 2 diabetics. Um, and so magnesium loss appears to be um, secondary to higher concentrations of glucose that uh, the kidneys uh, increase uh, output uh, when you're type 2 diabetic.
0: So would that be true for like pre-diabetics as well with people with insulin resistance or PCOS? And is it true for, I would think type one diabetics, right?
1: Well, so the research again is with type two diabetes in theory, what you're saying makes perfect sense, but I'll I'll say that the research has focused on type two diabetics uh, just because in the nutrition field, you know, we know that nutrition more highly affects uh, type two diabetes because of obesity. Um, The other group that is at risk for um, magnesium uh, inadequacy are people that are chronic alcoholics, um, people with alcohol dependence or people who uh, can binge drink uh, because they tend to have more gastrointestinal problems like diarrhea um, resulting from pancreatitis or renal dysfunction uh, or even excess magnesium uh, in the urine, right? Because alcohol acts as a diuretic. Um, They're also prone to vitamin D inadequacy, which, again, uh, is involved with magnesium regulation and that whole parathyroid hormone that I mentioned.
0: So I think when, you know, when it comes to heart health, just to just to continue the conversation, I mean, there's an interesting role for magnesium in blood pressure regulation. Right. Is that just part of the. Uh does it actually help with the elasticity of the blood vessels or what what how what's the mechanism for that tell us in, in simple terms don't use too big a you, 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 we don't need anything too complicated but i'm just curious how does that work
1: Right so in simple terms magnesium helps to lower your blood pressure and the food and drug administration has very few health claims and what we call qualified health claims uh that they allow on food packages and dietary supplements And magnesium and hypertension is one of the very few uh, claims that FDA, yes, actually just approved in the last two years. I was actually um, a part of the group uh, that submitted the petition uh, and the data for it to uh, be. Uh, have a qualified health
0: claim. I mean, that's relevant. I think one in three adults have high blood pressure, so that's uh, that's a very good reason. Um, what about the brain? I, I mean, I know you have a lot of interest in that. Tell us. Why magnesium is important for brain health, for those who may be interested in, you know, aging brain more uh, gracefully, I like to call it.
1: (laughs) Well, so magnesium is an interesting one when it comes to brain. Um, We know that deficiency in magnesium is related to um, uh, headaches and uh, neurotransmitter release and vasoconstriction. So uh, in the same you were talking about extending the elasticity of those blood vessels, you can also extend, you know, your blood vessels are a part of your cerebrovascular system, too. So when it gets constrained and it tightens up, uh you can get to have headaches and again, you can build up. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff in the brain. Um, research on magnesium on brain health is really in its infancy, uh, but we know that the cerebrovascular system is a uh, extension of the cardiovascular system. And usually the foods that we eat for heart health also contribute to brain health. Um, and then that's because, you know, the brain's just a big network of blood vessels and um, that's how it operates. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of confusion uh, that certain types of magnesium maybe don't cross the blood-brain barrier. The issue is, is that certain types of magnesium in supplement form aren't absorbed by the body, magnesium oxalate being the primary form. Uh, but if you look at other uh, types of magnesium, like magnesium citrate, and magnesium chloride. There's a few other salts. They are readily absorbed uh, from the GI tract, and they do cross the blood-brain barrier um, and uh, can uh, benefit uh, towards overall brain health because we know the more blood flow in the brain, the more you dilate those vessels. Well, I shouldn't say the more you can also you can dilate your blood vessels through smoking instantaneously, but we know that's not good for you. But the more sustained, like natural, you know, healthy dilation you can get, um, the more blood flow you have in the brain, and that's been shown to really uh, boost cognition and help you maintain cognition, especially into older adulthood.
0: So, what about I, i've read I've read about the role of magnesium also with like things like mood and stress management and PMS. Why do we have an explanation for that, or is that just something that's been shown in the studies?
1: Not really. Um, so there's not a lot of data uh, currently that support magnesium intake and mood. Now, look, I guess you can say if you don't have a headache because you are a migraine that you're probably going to be in a better mood. Um, but, you know, that's kind of research is really hard to begin with. So there's a lot of things that play into that that are really hard to measure versus something like cognition where we can measure, you know, plaque buildup. Uh, in the brain in Alzheimer's patients where there's like hard data points right um yeah so it's a really hard space
0: so what about i i i think that with insomnia there there is fairly decent research right that uh, a deficiency that it could it could potentially help
1: mm-hmm Yeah, there are some small studies that show uh, potential benefits of magnesium when it comes to insomnia and sleep disorders. Again, we need larger clinical trials. Those things are a little more subjective uh, between uh, individuals, and it makes it a little bit harder to study. But I think it's very much an emerging area of research. And we know um, even with my studies in the exercise space, uh, we're starting to see that um, magnesium can affect Uh, how the mitochondria uh, which are the energy producing organelles inside the cell work Um, and of course the brain is full of mitochondria uh, and because it 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 is you know running the whole body and it needs a lot of energy so your brain cells have a lot of mitochondria so it makes sense uh, that magnesium could have uh, some beneficial effects here but we again need more of those uh, long-term clinical studies.
0: It's interesting that you bring up mitochondria because that's something that's a prominent dysfunction in diabetes so maybe that explains some of the benefit in terms of diabetics as well so not only do they lose magnesium through the urine but they're also having you know impaired mitochondrial function so maybe it's supporting that so tell us a li- tell us about the research and exercise so what el- what else it's 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 a muscle thing right that's that's what the role it plays or is it right. is it muscle mitochondria? How can it help, uh, you know, with exercise performance or recovery? What what's that all about?
1: Yeah. So, well, going back to biology, and again, we're starting very, this is very young. Uh, we're running one of the first clinical studies that's really going invasive. I mean, we're taking muscle biopsies. So, we're taking chunks of people's muscle out of their leg. Actually, they're trained cyclists uh, that are Olympic level cyclists. We're, ta- we're taking chunks of their uh, muscle out. So, you can imagine how expensive that study would be to have a trained cyclist let you do that a couple of times. Um, but, The um, myoglobin, which is um, the protein in the muscle that traps oxygen from the blood, um, the center of that protein is magnesium. So, you know, magnesium is very important for that oxygen transfer in the muscles and how your muscles use oxygen and then uh, let off uh, CO2 and other uh, molecules. my the mitochondria also utilize magnesium and you can think of the mitochondria as like uh, cooks in the kitchen right so if you think of a restaurant that's super busy your mitochondria are your chefs in the back and so you know if your mitochondria have a lot of people in at rush hour and they're just going as quick as they can and like they can't keep up maybe people are sending their orders back and the kitchen starts filling up with like old orders in plates, and they're not able to really function appropriately. And our theory is, is that magnesium can really help clean out the kitchen um, and keep those mitochondria functioning at uh, an optimal pace, which we know for longevity, again, is really good. So it's not just about sports nutrition, but we want to keep people, you know, at their tip top shape where our bodies are kind of like machines. They And as we get older, we need to make sure that we re-oil them and make sure that you know, they're, they're working efficiently. And so that's kind of how I describe it, in layman's terms, what magnesium could potentially be doing in the mitochondria. But again, we'll um, need about, you know, four or five more months before we have the statistical na- analyses and, and manuscript published to really uh, give you a, a, a for sure answer on that.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's exciting. It sounds it sounds, you know, it, 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 It gives a lot of reasons, everything that you're describing. I mean, I I really, it's astounding to me that magnesium hasn't had a more prominent role in in the in the conversation about nutrition, you know, because there's just so many potential benefits. I mean, what and and the other one that people maybe think about and maybe they don't, is, is just regularity and and avoiding constipation. I mean, that's and I mean that's why magnesium oxide, which is the one, you know, that is poorly absorbed, yep. but can really cause diarrhea. On the other end, it it can help promote regularity and I, is that for from a kind of a relaxation of, of the um of the muscle in in the gut or do we know the mechanism of that
1: um yeah so i mean for instance milk of magnesia um, provides about 500 milligrams of uh, elemental uh, magnesium as magnesium hydroxide. And, you know, the cells, the GI tract, you know, when it comes to calcium and magnesium and other minerals, it's very selective. So, for example, your body only absorbs about 600 milligrams of calcium and magnesium, if you want to throw that one in there, uh, at a certain time point. So, I always tell people this on the calcium side, you know, a lot of postmenopausal women think they can take a 1,200 milligram a day calcium supplement and they're great for osteoporosis. Well, their body doesn't absorb half of that and they poop it out. Uh, magnesium just kind of speeds that up. That's why you usually take one of those big magnesium-like shakes before you have a colonoscopy because it clears everything out really quick. Um, so, yeah, that's been long, well-established. But, again, that's just with supplemental magnesium. Uh, food magnesium uh, won't do that. Um won't be- it, it-
0: – But actually, so is it, is it that the foods that are rich in magnesium generally are rich in fiber too, so that they work synergistically to help regularity? Is that, is that more of the story?
1: Yes. And also, when it comes to food, you have to think it's a more slow absorption because your body has to break down the plant cell wall for the magnesium to come out uh, and be absorbed in your body. So it's not hitting your system all at once.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's so cool. And and it's why, you know, I chose magnesium as one of our key nutrients for Ahara because... Really, I mean, if you're interested in brain health, heart health, metabolic health, healthy aging in terms of how your bones function, um, and and even, you know, exercise for the more, you know, athletic person. I mean, in my mind, there's really nobody that cannot benefit from having more dietary magnesium. And, and. you know, as much as I'd love for people to get it all from food, I-, I think that's probably not realistic for a lot of us. But I still think we should keep trying. So, um, do you have any le- closing thoughts? Your favorite magnesium-rich foods, and how do you- how do you get them in regularly? Because you gotta you gotta practice what you preach and do the food first, right?
1: I do, but I also am very practical. I do take a magnesium supplement. Magnesium is also the center of the chlorophyll molecule in plants. Uh, So if you're eating green plants, you're getting magnesium. Um, And if you're not, you're not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some, you know, there's obviously some, you know, non, non green plants, like whole grain. Right. No, that's
0: just one aspect. Yeah.
1: Seeds. But um, for the most part, you get a lot of magnesium from those green leafy vegetables, which I do love spinach and try to make salads with spinach almost every day.
0: Oh, um, really? But, Wait, what do you put? No, let's go. Let's let's end with a practical tip. Tell us about your spinach salad. What do you put in it? I, I don't I don't care for spinach <laughs> as a as a salad, but I'm curious how you judge it up to make it delicious.
1: Well, so I'll tell you, um, first time that I've told anybody about this, but I'm looking at doing a new cookbook with a publisher. And so um, this week, I am trying to be a little bit more healthy because, you know, I like to cook Southern style. Um, So I'm trying to take my little Southern style cooking and make it into a more healthful but easy, um, you know, meal plan. So I, this week I made uh, oven fried chicken, uh, which I had like, you know, as for the crust, I used, you know, your whole wheat breadcrumbs, but I also used uh, turmeric and uh, cayenne pepper, uh, paprika, um, onion powder, garlic powder. I know you have your book on spices and are all about spices. And I chalked this up to make this oven fried chicken, which actually turned out super good. Um, and then, so I had... I always have broccoli. Broccoli is my favorite vegetable. Um, I usually throw on some shaved carrots. Um, I add bell peppers because I have a garden full of bell peppers and I can't like... Okay, what about
0: the spinach? You're leaving us hanging. Where'd you get the spinach in? How do you make spinach taste delicious?
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm adding all these other vegetables. And then, of course, I'm Southern, so I put ranch dressing
0: on. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. No, I think a lot of people, you know, one of the things people don't realize with spinach, which is kind of cool, is that you can put it into smoothies and kind of bury the taste if you don't love the taste of spinach. But I do love sauteed spinach with a little bit, you know, with olive oil and maybe some pine nuts or something like that. And and uh, no, spinach is spinach is a good one. But so what about beans? Tell the truth. How many times a week do you eat beans?
1: So I actually, one of the, so I don't eat a variety of beans. Um, I do eat a lot of hummus. And I eat a lot of green beans, you know, again, I'm Southern. so But those I- aren't
0: legumes, but I love it. No, that's the thing. We're going to end with that because that's a practically healthy tip. Hummus counts as beans, people. So that's great. If you want to, I have carrots and hummus as a snack almost every day. So I think that's a, that's a perfect uh, place to end. And we appreciate all your magnesium wisdom. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the cookbook and also the results of that study uh, in athletes. I think it's going to be super. Interesting. And, you know, but I think we can say, even though there may not be definitive evidence with some of these things like mood and PMS and even insomnia and stress management, for me as a physician nutrition specialist, Telling people to eat more magnesium rich foods. I can never go wrong doing that. So I'm, I'm, and, and then, you know, supplementing in some cases where I really think there's more importance. Um, I think you just have to be smart about this stuff. So Taylor, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for all your wisdom. And, uh, next time I see you, I want you to make me that, uh, southern fried chicken and then we'll have a, we'll have a spinach salad on the side or sauteed spinach. All right. There we go. All right. Good to see you again. Take care. Bye. Bye. I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did. And I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you want to learn about, something that you want to learn more about, if there's something that you want to explain further that I've talked about, please let me know. Comment on my Instagram page, send me an email, melina at drmelina.com, and definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.